The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll get started. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we live in this nation where we have the freedom to gather together to study your word. We thank you for the fact that you've revealed yourself to us. We thank you for the sufficient, complete canon of scripture. We thank you for our sufficient salvation in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for his current ministry on our behalf as our high priest at the right hand of God the Father. Now, Father, we pray that As we study these things tonight, we'll get a greater understanding and insight of the many blessings you have given us, the many privileges that we have due to the access that we have through our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 5, we're getting into the core, the core doctrine of the book of Hebrews, which has to do with the superiority of Christ's priestly ministry the superiority of Christ's priestly ministry. And we have seen that in the first four verses, the writer is establishing the fact that every high priest is appointed by someone else, or in this case should be, because that is the uh, general procedure. God is the one who appoints a high priest. Men do not appoint them Selves. And this is a direct reflection as to some things that were going on in Judea at this time because you had the high priesthood had been under the control of one family since uh, the early part of that particular century, long before Christ became uh, incarnate, or Herod the Great had been. Uh, basically bribed and wooed by the family of Annas and Caiaphas, who, of course, you're familiar with because they were the high priests during the time of, of our Lord's ministry. And they managed to gain control of the uh, high priesthood as a matter of personal power and prestige. So as the writer of Hebrews is addressing this group of former priests who are now believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and wrestling with their uh, own spiritual life in light of their past heritage as priests, there's this comparison made between the high priesthood of their current experience and the biblical foundation for the high priesthood. The point in the first four verses is that Aaron did not glorify himself. He was appointed by God. We saw this in Exodus 28.1. It was verified and further established and confirmed by God in in Numbers 16.11, where we see the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and they were duly punished and lost their lives due to their violation of the authority of the high priesthood, their rebellion against Aaron. And then even in the next chapter in Numbers 17, 1 and following, we see that the very next day the Jews continue to complain against Aaron's leadership. And so God set up this test where each of those contending men would put their walking sticks into the tent of meeting and he regenerated Aaron's walking stick, his rod. See, people lose the meaning of that. We always talk about Aaron's rod that budded. We use that word so much, people don't know what it was. It was his staff, his walking stick. It's just a dead piece of wood that he's been using for a long time and they put it in the in the tent of meaning and God regenerated it so that it brought forth green shoots, leaves, uh, green 
uh, it became alive again. And that was how he indicated again that he had appointed Aaron. He confirmed Aaron in his in his leadership. And so the principle is laid down that no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God just as Aaron was. Verse 4, so also, point of comparison, Christ follows in this, Christ's appointment to his high priestly ministry fits this same principle. And we studied this last time that Jesus Christ did not come to glorify himself. In fact, he made this point several times in the time of his incarnation. John 8:54. Jesus answered and said, "If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God." So he did not come for the purpose of self-glorification. Furthermore, in John 7:18, Jesus said, "He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory." But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, that's in reference to himself. He who is seeking the glory of the one who has sent him is himself. So he is seeking not his own glory, but the glory of the Father. He is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Again and again, he emphasizes the fact that he is not seeking to glorify himself. John 8.42, Jesus said to them, If God were your Father... You would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but He sent me. Jesus Christ is not the initiator in His role, even as eternal second person of the, of the Trinity. He is under the authority of God the Father, and that's the essence of humility, which we studied last time when we looked at the passage in Philippians 2, 5 to 11 that focuses on the incarnation and the hypostatic union. Again, in John 9, 4, Jesus said, We must work the works of Him who sent me as long as it is day. The reason I'm going through these verses is to uh, for us to get the impact of how many times Jesus made statements related to His own authority orientation and that He was not seeking uh, His own glory but that of the Father. John uh, 10.25, Jesus answered them and said, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These bear witness of me. He does his works in the Father's name as the representative of the Father, not for his own benefit. And then in John 10.38, But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again and again and again, He's demonstrating that the purpose for the incarnation is for him to glorify the Father. He didn't go through the incarnation and become flesh and uh, dwell among us for the purpose of glorifying himself. And as we come to understand what took place during the uh, incarnation, it's obvious that there wasn't any self-glorification involved. It meant excruciating suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ when you just think in terms of the cross, that he would go to the cross and he who knew no sin was made sin for us as the Father imputed to him all the sins of mankind. At that point, he became judicially guilty. They were imputed to him. He, he carried in his own body our sins on the cross, Peter said, so that he was separated judicially from the Father. Now, we struggle with trying to understand just how that would take place because here you have the eternal second person of the Trinity who is more closely united with the other members of the Trinity than anything that we can, we can uh, comprehend in our own experience. And yet, during those three hours on the cross, because he is receiving the imputation of our sin, he is judicially separated from the Father, and so this brings excruciating pain. All the other pain that he went through leading up to that, and I don't know how many of you saw the the film that came out last year on the Passion of the Christ, and I didn't see it, but I heard enough descriptions of it, and all of the extended uh, beatings that he went through that were just excruciating, that would 
have killed a lesser man. He goes through all of that, the whippings, the beatings, all of the torture, everything. And yet, like the lamb before its shearers is dumb, so he opened not, not his word. Why is it that he didn't say anything? Because he's making a, a point is being illustrated that as painful and as excruciating as all of that physical suffering was, it was nothing compared to when that first sin hit our righteous Savior. And when that first sin hit him, he screams out in agony. And that that is to demonstrate how horrible, how horrendous this whole uh, thing was of, of bearing our sin. Not only is, does, is he made sin for us, but throughout his ministry he goes through consistent rejection by the very people he had come to save. He is rejected by them. He has uh, a history with them where he has led them through the wilderness. He loved them. He called them. He chose them. He redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. He led them through the wilderness. He took them into the promised land, conquered their enemies, provided leaders, spoke through the prophets, all of this throughout the Old Testament. And when this God who has done all of this for Israel incarnates himself and comes to them, they reject him. Again and again and again, he goes through personal rejection. And we know what that's like within our own experience, yet he goes through it on a day, daily basis with the people that he has done so much for. He, is, he goes through unspeakable agony in all of the suffering on the cross. The spiritual death is judgment for sins of the sins of the world. And all of this on our behalf. So he, as a high priest, bears the penalty for our sin. This is not glorification to go through all of this humiliation. But by going through that, he is then glorified by the Father. And this is where the Philippians 2 passage ends up. Last time we looked at that, Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is a mandate to be humble. That's the issue in the first four verses, as we saw, that the issue that Paul is emphasizing is unity. And in order to demonstrate this, he says there has to be true and genuine humility. And, uh, and the only example for that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who was fully God, but did not think that his deity was something to be grasped after. So he became a man in the incarnation. And in verse 8, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. That's the essence of genuine humility or meekness. It's not being a doormat. It's not letting people take advantage of you. Uh, Genuine humility is strength. Moses was the most humble man in the world in the Old Testament. Numbers uh, states that. Remember, Moses was the most humble man in the world. Yet Moses wasn't this person that could be rolled over by people, even though he's dealing with probably two to three million uh, rebellious, spiritually rebellious people in the wilderness. But he's humble because he is obedient to God. And that was the whole uh, point in that particular episode, to reinforce the fact that as the Jews are rebelling against Moses' authority, God is asserting the fact that Moses is authority oriented that's where real strength lies is in being properly oriented to divine authority and thus to every other sphere of authority so Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of the cross even the death on the cross therefore what God has also exalted him Jesus did not go enter the position of high priest in order to exalt himself or to glorify himself. He did it to glorify the Father. And as he focused on the mission to pay the penalty for the sins of the world, then because he is completely oriented to the to the authority of the Father and completes the mission, it is God who exalted him and God who glorified him. And that's the point for us in terms of application is it's not about self-glorification in our lives, getting the credit. It is about giving the credit to God, driving forward in our Christian life under the authority of God, 
and then it is God who exalts us in, a, in the proper time. We don't exalt ourselves. The result of that is that in the future, Jesus Christ will be honored as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And uh, Philippians 2, 10 and 11, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we went to Philippians 2 last time to show that Jesus Christ did not become incarnate to glorify himself. This is the purpose for the hypostatic union, and that's the background for understanding the passage in Hebrews 5 as well as Philippians 2. But to understand where the writer is going, we have to understand the hypostatic union. So here we have a definition of hypostatic union up on the screen. The Greek word is hypostasis, which means a the which refers to the substantial nature, the essence, the actual being or reality of a thing. So you have a substance, a nature of something. So Jesus Christ in his deity has his divine uh, nature. And then when he is incarnate, he adds to that his human nature. He doesn't give up any deity. We saw that last time in Philippians chapter 2. It's not talking about the fact that he gives up anything, but he takes on, adds to his deity the form of a bondservant and comes in the likeness of a man. So there's a, a joining of the human nature to the eternal divine nature. And so as a definition, we say that the hypostatic union describes the union of two natures, divine and human, in the one person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's important to understand the difference between a nature and a person. And the nature has to do with his deity and his humanity, whereas person has to do with the entirety of his personality. You don't have two persons. So it's somewhat confusing and wrong to, to articulate it by saying, well, Jesus did X uh, out of his deity, or that was the deity of and, and or Jesus did Y out of his, out of his humanity, because it, it, it's as if he's a split personality. He's one person. Everything that he did came from the one person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are some things that he did that demonstrated that he was fully God. There are some things that he did that demonstrate that he had undiminished deity as part of his uh, person, that one nature was undiminished deity. For example, he changed the water into wine. And that was an indication that he is the sovereign creator and he is able to manipulate and to change the elements of creation. He forgave the paralytic the because of his sins, indicating that he was God and he heals him. These are to demonstrate that he is God who he claims to be. Some people have the idea that Jesus Christ did everything in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is not quite right. He did not do everything in the power of the Holy Spirit. He had to do some things in his own divine power to demonstrate that he was who he claimed to be, and that is the the divine Messiah, that he was fully God. Where you have to draw the the distinction is that Jesus never relied upon his deity to solve the problems he faced in his humanity. Let me say that again. He never used his divine power and resources to solve the problems in his humanity. If he was hungry, he wasn't turning the stones into bread. If he was thirsty, he wasn't turning the rocks into water. He didn't turn the water into wine to satisfy a personal problem outside pressure of adversity or anything in his life. He did that to demonstrate who he was. So when he uses his deity to, to perform various miracles, it was to demonstrate who he was not to solve a problem or a test or an area of adversity in his own life. 
He's doing it to demonstrate that He is God and He has power over creation. For example, when He told, uh, spoke to the storm, when the disciples are pressing the panic button and they're uh, running all over the ship and they think that they're about to, to all die and Jesus is sleeping down in the bottom of the, of the boat and Jesus, they wake Him up and Jesus says, Why are you afraid? And He just commands the storm to be still and instantly... It's still, and the water's smooth, and everything's fine. That's from his deity. He's not doing that to solve a personal problem in his own life. That's where you draw the distinction. When it comes to his personal growth, when it comes to his uh, dealing with a temptation, testing, adversity in his life, then he relies on the Word of God and the Spirit of God to problem-solve, just as we do, setting that precedent. That's the background for where we're going in this passage, that's what qualifies him to be a our high priest because the priestly nature of his ministry is related to his being a, a, a human being. So we see in Philippians 2 that humanity is added to deity. He has two natures, divine and human, united in one person. So everything that he does comes from the one person of Jesus Christ. That was the Nestorian heresy of the uh, 4th century A.D. to think of these two natures and two persons. You can't, you don't have a split personality here. Two natures, one person. These natures, then, we go on to say in the definition, are inseparably united. Inseparably united. That means you can't separate them. But they're united. But they're united in such a way that there's no loss or mixture of separate identity. In other words, they're not flowing from one to the other. As humanity doesn't flow over into the into the divine side, the deity doesn't flow into the human nature. They are brought together, and they don't mix. But they're united inseparably. So these natures are inseparably united without loss or mixture of separate identity. It's clear where the deity is, where the humanity is. Without loss or transfer of properties or attributes. He doesn't lose any attributes of his deity. He is still omnipresent even though he is localized in one physical human body. Now that sort of stretches our ability to comprehend that. He is still omnipotent and holding together the uh, subatomic mass throughout the universe when he's just a little baby six minutes old. In his deity, he he still functions, but he is localized in his humanity. So there's no loss or transfer of properties or attributes. The union being personal... And eternal. It is a personal union. You have a person. It's not a force. It is a person, the one person of Jesus Christ, and it's eternal. It's never going to stop. From now throughout the, the, the rest of humanity, Jesus Christ is, I mean, the rest of eternity, Jesus Christ is going to be pure humanity. He's going to be united. His deity is united with his humanity. But see, deity didn't change, so it's still Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because the deity never changes because there's no loss or mixture of attributes. See, we just glibly run through this definition. You've heard it, I don't know how many times, and yet we don't realize that it took about 150 years for this definition to be hammered out between the Council of Nicaea in 325 and the Council of Chalcedon in 451, about 126 years. And there were some, there were some real battles over this, but it distills into one precise technical definition everything that the Scripture says about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ after the incarnation. The implication for this is profound when it comes to understanding his priesthood, which is his current ministry, and his role or operation as the incarnate Jesus Christ on the earth in setting the precedent 
for the spiritual life today. We see this in the book of Hebrews, back in Hebrews 2.10. This is the first time the writer introduced this theme. Back in Hebrews 2, verse 10, he says it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things. Notice that 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 refers to... um, that refers to God the Father because this is the one who is going to perfect the author of our salvation. So it was fitting for him, that is God the Father, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. That's the plan of salvation viewed in its final result in bringing us to glorification. Remember, you have three stages of salvation. Stage one is justification salvation, where we are saved from the penalty of sin. What's the penalty of sin? Lake of fire? No. Spiritual death. Spiritual death was the penalty for sin. That's what God announced in Genesis chapter 2. The day you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. What happened? They ate and they died right then. It was spiritual death separation from God, and they died spiritually. They lost that human spirit. Every subsequent generation after that is born without a human spirit. They have a human soul and human body, but that immaterial element that allows the soul to communicate with God and to relate to God, to understand the things of God, is missing. So they're born without the human spirit, so they begin to die physically from the moment they're born because they are separated from the source of life, which is God. Now, Jesus Christ comes. He dies on the cross for our sins. We trust in him, and what happens at that instant? We're born again. We're regenerate. We receive what? Spiritual life. That's the penalty is reversed. That's justification, salvation. We are saved from the penalty of sin, which is spiritual death. We receive spiritual life. But now that new life has to grow. We're a newborn baby, a spiritual baby, a spiritual infant, and we have to grow. And we grow by walking by the Spirit, studying the Word of God. The Holy Spirit takes the Word of God that we learn, and it produces growth in our life. And that's the process of working out our salvation, Philippians 2, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's phase two. And the ultimate goal that all this is going to is phase three, glorification, when we realize the full results of our salvation, our soteria, which is the Greek noun for salvation, which we always think of in terms of phase one. But in most of the New Testament, it's talking about the end product, that toward which we are going, the final package that is ours in glorification. And that's a key to properly understanding, interpreting the Scripture. So we read in uh, Hebrews 2.10, In bringing many sons to glory, that's phase three glorification. In order to do that, God the Father had to perfect or mature, bring to maturity, bring to completion, the author or pioneer or pathfinder, trendsetter, pace setter, all these ideas are present there. He is the one who sets the precedent for our salvation through suffering. See, the salvation's the goal. And he is matured. He's the author, pioneer of our salvation, the ultimate goal through suffering. So he had to go through suffering as well. That is then connected in Hebrews uh, 2.17. In all things, he had to be made like his brethren, incarnation, true humanity, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. He can't be a high priest if he's not truly human. So he had to be truly human to be a faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make propitiation for our sins, to be the sacrifice. He's not only the priest, but he's the sacrifice. And his sacrifice satisfies the righteousness and the justice of God, for in that he himself has suffered, that's the... Next time this concept is brought in, being tested, he is able to aid those who are also tested. So there the testing relates to his suffering, and it's not limited to the suffering on the cross. It's related to all of the testing that he went through from the incarnation all the way to the point of the cross that prepared him for the cross. 
Then the writer leaves that idea. He comes back to it at the beginning of this next section where he talks about Christ as our high priest in Hebrews 4.14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And here he connects those two ideas, the deity of Christ on the one hand and his humanity, his priesthood on the other hand. That is an important connection to make, that on the one hand, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's his deity. On the other hand, we have this emphasis on his priesthood. That's his humanity. And they're joined together in hypostatic union. So there are five things that we emphasize in understanding the hypostatic union. First of all, Jesus Christ was undiminished deity. Undiminished means he's never less than fully God. He has all the attributes of deity. They're never lessened. They may not be evident, but they're always fully there. Second thing that we mean it by the hypostatic union is that he's fully human. What it is to make us human. Now, we're almost, in a sense, subhuman. Why is that? Because we have a sin nature. We aren't what God originally created the human race. We have been affected by evil. It's part of our nature. The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things who can know it. We have... We have a fallen nature, so in some sense we're less than what God intended us to be. But Jesus Christ as the second Adam is everything that God intended man to be. So he is more of a real human being than we are at the point of our, at least when we're unsaved at the point of our birth. So he had full humanity, true humanity, unfallen humanity. Third, his undiminished deity and his full humanity were united in one person forever. So they can never, they're never separated. He, a, a, a million years from now, we are still going to see the deity of the second person of the Trinity localized in his humanity. But he's also going to be omnipresent. He's still going to be omnipresent as the second person of the Trinity. But he is going to also be united with the resurrection body of, of his humanity. Fourth, the product of this union, therefore, is the unique person of history. We refer to it as the theanthropic person from the Greek word theos, meaning God, and anthropos, meaning man, joined together in a compound word, the theanthropic person. Fully God, fully man, the God-man. And this is the great mystery that Paul speaks about in Colossians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Colossians chapter 2, 2 and 3. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God. The mystery of God, it's a hitherto unrevealed truth, and it's not the easiest thing to understand, both of the Father and of Christ. So the mystery of the truth here is related to both the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then you skip down from Colossians 2, 2 and 3 to verse 9, for in him, that is in Jesus Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The issue isn't that Jesus Christ was a man and somehow became God. That is a pagan notion. And that is the idea that, that the church somehow deified him. This is what comes across in the, in the uh, liberal critical analysis of the gospel. It's the, what's uh, embodied in the Da Vinci Code is that Jesus is just a man. It was the church that tried to make him uh, something else. But he is always and eternally, eternally God. And it was humanity that was added to his deity. Okay, back to Hebrews 5. So also we read, Christ did not glorify himself to be made high priest. He is exalted by the Father. The Father is the one who appoints him to high priest. And this is the point of these next two quotations. But it was he, that is God the Father, who said to him, God the Son, 
You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, when did he say this? This declaration is made, according to Acts 13.33, this declaration is made at the time of the resurrection. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And the way that should be translated from the Hebrew is, Today I declare you my begotten one. Now, that is important to understand because if you read it the way it's normally translated, it's as if it's at this time, that is the resurrection, where he's begotten. No, it is at this time that a declaration is made that he is the begotten one. He is eternally begotten. Jesus Christ was always the Son of God. In eternity past, he's always the Son of God. If he's not the Son of God, then think about it. What would you call the first person of the Trinity a billion years ago if there's no Son? there's no son there's no father but the father is eternally the father and the son is eternally the son he's eternally the son of god it's a it applies to him throughout all eternity he doesn't become the son of the incarnation he doesn't become the son at the uh, resurrection he doesn't become the son at the ascension he is always the son but the declaration of his sonship occurs at the res- at at the resurrection that's what acts 13 33 is all about and it is that declaration of his sonship as the son of God because he has qualified in his humanity and this is what we studied when we went through lengthy study back in Hebrews 1 verses 2 and 3 that Jesus Christ has the authority over the angels because of his position as second person of the trinity but that's not what the writer of Hebrews is, is arguing in the first chapter. He is saying that he became flesh. He dwelt among us. He goes through tests. He goes through suffering. He passes the test. He qualifies. And he is then declared son of God and put in position over the angels. He qualifies not only by virtue of his eternal deity, but he qualifies in his humanity because he passed all the tests and he goes to the cross, dies for our sins, and God the Father then promotes him in reference to his humanity over the angels so that he has authority over the angels from both his innate deity and his qualification as man. This places him over the angels. So it's this merger of his, uh, of the, uh, or this joining of eternal sonship with his uh, human priesthood that is the basis for his present ministry as high priest. So this connects these two ideas. Psalm 2.7, You are my son. Today I have begotten you, declaring his eternal sonship, and then linking that with the declaration of his priesthood in Hebrews 5.6, which connects to not the Aaronic priesthood, which was a limited priesthood related to Jewish descent, related to genetics, that was related to that temporary covenant, that temporary law code, the Mosaic law code. It is a limited priesthood just for Israel. But Hebrews 5.6 ties Jesus' priesthood to a greater priesthood, to the Melchizedekian priesthood, which is a Gentile priesthood, a priesthood that includes all humanity. And it is a royal priesthood. It is a priesthood that is superior to the priesthood of Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. I want you to note it says you are a what forever? You're a priest forever. Forever. This isn't going to stop at some point. Priesthood relates to his Humanity, you are a priest forever. So uh, a billion years from now into the future, Jesus Christ is still going to be a Melchizedekian priest. It's part of his role in his humanity, and we will be uh, serving under him as kings and priests according to the book of Revelation. So this starts pulling all these different ideas together. And then the writer goes on in verse 7 to talk about what happens during the period of the incarnation. 
and how that qualifies and prepares him to serve as our priest. Because remember, part of the role of the priest back in 5.2 is to have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray. He represents us. So in the days of his flesh, that is during the time of the incarnation before the resurrection, when he had offered up prayers and supplication. with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. And we'll get back. We have to do some corrected translation there. Though he was a son, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. Okay, let's clean up the translation a little bit in verse 7. He offers up prayers and supplications. This was something that characterized Jesus Christ's life in his humanity. He was consistently going to God in prayer over and over again. You can go through a number of passages in the scripture to demonstrate this. For example, Mark one thirty five, Mark six forty six, Luke five six, Luke six twelve. These are just some of the passages that talk about Jesus going away to prayer. Again and again you find that Jesus leaves the disciples. He wants to get away from the hustle and bustle of the crowds, the pressure of uh, ministry, the questions from the disciples, so that he can be alone, so that he doesn't have to deal with all of that. He wants to turn off the cell phones and get off the Internet and everything else so that he can be alone with God, away from all the distractions. Prayer is a priority in his ministry. Now, prayer is a priority in the perfect spiritual life of the Lord Jesus Christ, how much more significant prayer should be in our life because we need that dependence on on God the Father even more. So prayer expressed Christ's dependence on God and the, the scriptures make a point of showing how he is continuously going to the Lord in prayer. For example, at his baptism when John the Baptist Uh, baptizes Jesus to initiate him into his public ministry, we're told in Luke 3.21, now it came about when all the people were baptized, that Jesus also was baptized, and while he was praying, heaven opened. That's when the dove comes down, you hear the voice of God the Father and the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descends upon him. But what's Jesus doing? You never hear anybody emphasize that. He is in prayer at that particular time. The same kind of thing happens again on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is the one time when the uh, humanity of Christ is sort of uh, folded back and the glory of his deity is exposed. He's transfigured. He's up on the mountain uh, with James and John and Peter. And in Luke 9.29, what's he doing again? He is in prayer. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different. His clothing became white and gleaming. And again, the Father speaks from heaven, and we see the Holy Spirit descend like a dove. So he is in prayer at his baptism. He's in prayer at his transfiguration. He is consistently in prayer. When his uh, hour was at hand, he goes to the garden to pray. Now, this is an important passage, what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. Hold your place in Hebrews and turn to the Gospels, Luke Well, I got the wrong passage. 2239. Goes up to Mount of Olives after leaving. Remember the chronology for that night. They have the Passover meal in the upper room. Then they leave the upper room. And along the way, we have the discourse on the vine in John chapter 15. And then the discourse about uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit, John 16. And then his high priestly prayer in John 17, which fits into the fold of what's taking place in verses uh, 39 to 46. 
So they come out, they go to the Mount of Olives as he he was accustomed. Notice that. Don't read past that too quickly. This shows that this was a standard operating procedure for him to go to this area to get away from the crowds, to get away from the pressure, and to spend time in prayer. Uh, To go to the Mount of Olives as was his custom, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Why? That they may not yield to fear. He knows that the Roman soldiers are coming to arrest them. There's all this uh, going to be tremendous pressure. Pray that you may not enter into temptation or yield to testing is the idiom. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. So he goes off about 30 or 40 feet. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will... Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So this is where we see the picture of what's going on in Hebrews 5, uh, 5, 6, uh, 5 7, is that he is praying to God to remove this pressure. He knows what's going to happen. He, he understands the, the pressure, the trauma, the, the pain, the misery that he's going to go through. Not physically, he's anticipating that separation from the Father. And he is praying out of his humanity, if there's any other way to do this, remove this, this from me. Nevertheless, this is where he passes the test. See, the test is, are you going to bail out? And he prays to the Father, if there's any way out, let me out. But nevertheless... Not my will, but your will be done. He's focused on the will of the Father. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. So while he is in the garden, he is being uh, strengthened by an angel. And being in agony, this is talking about the physical agony that he is going through in anticipation of the the spiritual agony he will go through on the cross. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And he is under such pressure. He's feeling the pressure physically that the blood in his corpuscles is actually being forced out through his cells so that he is sweating blood. Now, you and I have never felt pressure like that. There is documentation of this happening with people in some circumstances. This is really facing the outside pressure of adversity. This is when you're really uh, about to get stressed out. You're really under the pressure. And he is, he is anticipating this so much that he is feeling this physically in every pore of his body. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow they they just it's so emotional they just they're emotionally wrung out and they're sound asleep they just they're just wasted so he wakes them up and says why do you sleep rise and pray lest you enter into a temptation so he spends this time in prayer knowing the only way he's going to make it through the events of the next 12 hours is going to be his relationship with God, his prayer lifeline. Now let's turn over a few pages into the Gospel of John and I just want to look at the first four or five verses of his prayer in John 17. John 17 is what we normally refer to as the real Lord's Prayer. Not that prayer over in Matthew that everybody recites as the Lord's Prayer. That was the model prayer for the disciples. This is the uh, real Lord's Prayer, his high priestly prayer. He is representing the church in this prayer. This comes uh, prior to the events we just read about uh, at the same over on the Mount of Olives. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also may glorify you. 
What's his concern? Is the glorification of God. That's what I've been pointing out while we went back to Philippians 2 and, and went through all the various passages in John earlier that his focus is on glorifying God. Glorify your son, your, your son that your son also may glorify you. And, and, and when he says glorify your son here, it is a prayer that the son would be strengthened in his hour of testing. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. That's his mission, not self-glorification. I finished the work which you have given me to do. He was appointed by God in this priestly role. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory with which I had with you before the world was, before the world came to be. Jesus expresses his dependence upon God continuously in prayer. Now, back to Hebrews 5-7. In the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with literally strong cries, screams, and this indicates the intensity of his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane prior to going to the cross with strong cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. He is not only sweating drops of blood, he is also weeping. He's under incredible pressure and emotion as well. His soul runs the whole gamut. We can't even imagine what he is going through during this particular time. But in the midst of all this pressure, he doesn't yield. He doesn't give up. He doesn't go off course. He stays the course in obedience to God and to fulfill God's plan for his life. And he's heard because of his, and it's a bad translation in the King James, the idea of heard for his godly fear, the word there that is translated godly fear actually has the meaning of his concern, his respect for God's honor. That's the idea that's there. It's not because of his personal piety or spiritual strength. It is because he, it's fear in the sense of respect for or honor for God. And so the idea there, it's a one word in the, in, the, uh, in the Greek, that he's heard because of his concern for God's honor and glory. He's focused on God's plan for his life, not his plan for his life. It's not about self-glorification. And then verse 8 reads, Though he was a son, though he is eternal deity, with perfect righteousness, perfect justice, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Learning is the aorist, uh, active indicative of Montano, that he gains knowledge in his humanity he is learning. Deity doesn't learn. Deity is omniscient. It never grows. It never acquires knowledge. It never learns anything new. So we have the concessive clause that although he was a son, which indicates that he's omniscient, yet in his humanity, he learns obedience by the things that he suffers. Pasco, which means at its root to undergo an experience. But it has the idea of a negative experience, which is to go through physical uh, suffering. So he goes through adversity and he learns obedience. That's the crucible in which spiritual growth takes place. And then verse 9, and having been Perfected. Poor translation of the participle there. The word translated perfected is the our familiar word teleao, meaning to be made complete, to be made mature, or to be made perfect. Here it has the idea of being made mature, and it is a temporal adverbial participle when he had been matured, when he was matured, when he had been brought to completion he became the author of eternal salvation. So it indicates the timing. When he had been matured, when he finished the process in his humanity of reaching spiritual maturity, 
He became something. The author, the atios. This is a word that's only used here in the New Testament. It means a, the cause, the source, or the reason of something. And you may be familiar with the word etiology, which indicates the study of the reasons for things. Uh, the author or the source of eternal salvation. And that's how we are going to translate it. When he had reached maturity, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He became the source of soteria. Now that word soteria, translated salvation here, isn't talking about phase one justification. It's talking about the end product. He is the source of what we get in the end result, which has to do with our rewards and our inheritance and everything that we're going to have in terms of our position of ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom. So he goes through that whole process of maturity, comes to the end, fulfills the task as an example to us of going to maturity so that we're qualified to rule and reign with him at the end result of our salvation. That's why it says he's the, he's the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, see, you can look at that. If you've got the wrong idea of salvation here, and you think of salvation as phase one justification, what you're going to read in this verse is that you're going to get saved if you obey him. And it's going to come across as works, that you have to maintain this life of consistent obedience or you're not going to get saved. Well, that's true. You're not going to get saved phase three, full reward glorification. But we're not talking about phase one justification going to heaven when you die here. That's not the idea. It's talking about the end result. Salvation doesn't have to do with obedience. That's works. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not about works. It's about trusting in Jesus Christ. In John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, we have one of the greatest illustrations of saving faith in the New Testament. Very few people ever go to this as an example. And it refers to the event in Numbers chapter 21 when the Israelites are going through the wilderness and once again... There's a whole series there from about chapter 15 on of one of complaining and rebelling and complaining and rebelling. They, they complain about uh, God's provision, and so he sends the uh, burning uh, grass fire that threatens them, and then they complain about the food, and he sends the quail, and, with the, and they overeat the quail, and they have a plague, and then they complain again about, uh, about Moses, and then they... Uh, don't follow the leadership of Joshua and Caleb into the land. I mean, just one event after another. In every chapter, it says, and the people of Israel complained, and they complained, and they complained. So God again sends discipline with the fiery serpents. And the, the, there's this uh, infestation of these vipers in the area, and people are getting bit, and they're dying very rapidly. So Moses goes to God to intercede for the people, and God says the solution simple. I want you to make an make an image of a, of, a, of a serpent, a brass image, and you're going to put it up on a pole, which of course is a picture of Christ being on the cross. You're going to put it up on a pole, and anybody who looks at it is going to be healed instantly. That's the picture of salvation. It's not committing your life to Christ. It's not inviting Jesus into your heart. It is simply looking in trust to the cross to save you. It's very simple. It doesn't involve any of these other things people want to pull into. It doesn't involve works. They didn't have to travel anywhere. They didn't have to change anything. They just had to put their focus on that serpent for a second, and they were instantly healed. The serpent, incidentally, I mean, this solution is available to everybody. It is an unlimited salvation offer. It goes for everybody, and it's sufficient for everybody. Anyone can be saved. It's not just... For those who look, it's available to everyone. It is an unlimited salvation solution. So John goes to that as an or Jesus here in John three fourteen. We're not sure where Jesus stops and John talk, uh, starts. That's another issue. John three fourteen. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. I left out John three fifteen. Uh, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. 
Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. That's it. Belief is analogous to looking to that serpent. It's just a simple act of trust, and that's all that's needed uh, for salvation. It's not by work. So when it says he's the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, it's not about obedience to get saved. It is about that Christian walk of obedience in the spiritual life in order to grow to maturity to be prepared to rule and reign with Jesus Christ in the future when we get the final soteria salvation package. And so in verse 10, the writer concludes by saying that this is the one who was called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He restates the quote from Psalm 110 verse 4 that he had stated in verse 6. It is his priestly ministry that provides the precedent for our spiritual life, provides the uh, perfect uh, solution to our sin at the cross, and then establishes the path to the fulfillment of that salvation package in the future millennial kingdom. We'll come back to wrap this up and go into the next section uh, in a couple of weeks after the conference is over. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to be encouraged and reminded of the significance of Christ's priestly ministry, that even now he sits as our intercessor at, the, at your right hand, and he is praying for us, and he is uh, waiting for the completion of the church, the, his body, his bride, in order to that you will uh, uh, bring about the uh, end times and he will come into his own and into his kingdom and even now he is preparing us to rule and reign with him in that kingdom may we be uh, mindful of the fact that we are in a preparation position right now we are being trained for that future destiny not lose sight of the goal we pray this in Christ's name Amen